It's February 6th, 2019, and you're listening to the Architecture Happy Hour. I'm Laura. I'm Holly. And it's a two-drink minimum, so grab your glass and let's get started. Well, on today's podcast, we are very excited to welcome David Shep, who is with the American Friends for the Preservation of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, which is an organization here in the United States that is focused on saving Paris's oldest church. David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I can't wait to hear all about this project that you've been working on. Laura, I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Well, we would love to hear a little bit about you and about this church, because as I understand it, you have made your career in finance. And so off the top of my head, that doesn't strike me as somebody who has devoted their life's work to architecture. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in saving this church in France? Yes, absolutely. Um, It would be an overstatement to say that I've devoted my life to saving (laughs) architecture. This has become a, uh, a project of, of uh, an abiding passion of mine, deep love. Um, to answer the question, yes, I was uh, and am still in international finance work for a number of major banks, uh, mostly based in New York, another based in London. And over the course of a long and happy career in finance, I found myself living in Paris on two separate occasions for a total of about 10 years. Even before that, though, I was a student uh, happily way back when and in Paris. And so, as you know, Paris is not a huge city. It's not London. It's not New York. And so I got to know the city very, very well over time. And uh, at the last, I was basically a neighbor, lived in the neighborhood and so um, knew the church intimately well. Oh, that's so interesting. So they didn't keep you busy 80 hours a week so that you couldn't get out and see the sites? I I didn't say that either. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you you got to go out at least on the weekends and and somehow you discovered this church. Uh, It was was hard to miss, and I can go into that later. It's, uh, It's right at the center of town, really at the crossroads of, I think, Paris's most beautiful and historic and resonant neighborhood. If you were going to make a movie of Paris with all the cliches, you'd film it in this neighborhood. And the church at the center is our church, the Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And it's located in the Latin Quarter, am I correct? You're absolutely correct. Uh, For those who know, it's in the sixth arrondissement, right in the center of town, uh, not too far from the river. And that neighborhood is known for a lot of things, for its history, but these days for just wonderful buildings all over, museums, the cafes, it's the publishing and art gallery center of town, a lot of things happening in town. But uh, this church is at the very center of what I call the beating heart of Paris. Oh, it sounds amazing. I just want to go there and sit in a wonderful cafe and drink wine. It sounds perfect. (laughs) Not a bad idea. (laughs) Maybe we have to meet up with you and do a field trip to see this in person. Yes, we'll fire up the corporate jet, which as soon as I get one, I'll let you know. Right? Fantastic. Me too. Okay. Well, so tell me a little bit. We've mentioned where it's located, um, but as many things are in Europe, in France, and in Paris, of course, um, they these buildings are much older than anything we have here in the United States, and 
if you could give us just a quick history of how did this church come to be? I understand that it has had several iterations with uh, part of it falling down and exploding and just a dramatic story. So tell us, what does it look like today and where did it start? It, it, it has a fantastic history. It really does. And that's, I think, half the attraction, if not more, for a lot of people, including myself. The church is, without any doubt, the oldest church in Paris. So people say, well, how old is it? And the answer is, as in many things, well, how, how can we count this? Because there are actually two answers. The current structure is 1,000 years old. It was finished in 1014. So a few years ago, they had the thousandth, the millennial celebration of the current structure. So the, act, the actual church that's there now is 1,000 years old. Yes, yes. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Okay. Now, other people would say, well, hang on. It's actually <laughs> 1,500 years old because the original uh, church and abbey that surrounded it were founded in 543 AD by uh, the son of Clovis I, who's one of the, the great emperors of Christendom based in Paris. And in 543, a wooden church was put up and suffered uh, and was successful and was the, 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 the site of a lot of um, interesting events, both religious and secular. And But then over the next uh, two, three centuries, uh, the church suffered many indignities, and you alluded to one. The Vikings came through in the late 800s, 875, and destroyed the church, raised it to the ground, burnt it. Uh, and it was rebuilt. In fact, it was rebuilt a couple of times. And then it was only in the years leading up to 1014 that the permanent church that we know today was constructed, took some little time, but uh, was finished in 1014, 1015, something like that. And that's the church we see today. So take your pick. It's a thousand years old or it's <laughs> 1500 years old. But what's interesting is that the current church sits on precisely the same footprint as the antecedent churches that had been set up uh, 500 years earlier. So it's a, it's a great story, it really is. Interesting, so it really has served as a community center right there in that neighborhood forever, forever. really. Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, the, the history of the city of Paris goes back a little further uh, when it was Lutece, I mean, right around you know 20 AD, uh, the first rem or first vestiges of Paris were set up on the Ile de la Cité, Ile Saint Louis. But um, but this, you know, 543, it goes way back. It goes way back. Yeah, I'm trying to get my head around what did life look like back then because of you know the architecture, the fashions, the the food they ate, the uh, you know just what was life like? What kind of technology did they even have back then? Because I was looking back over, um, for example at the same time period in America, we were building with mud bricks. And at the same time, these people were building with, with massive timbers and stone and very intricate um, carvings and things like that. So how do you compare what was going on in Europe at the time with maybe what we still have remnants of here in the U.S.? Well, that's, that's a great question, and it, it really is, I think, apples and oranges. It's hard to compare. I think the starting point in thinking about these things is that this church and abbey that surrounded it, as, as well as others in those, those days, 
were not only spiritual centers, centers for worship, but they were intellectual centers as well. And so libraries and uh, printing, uh, either hand printing or eventually uh, movable type printing, were uh, found in these uh, in these buildings. I think it's hugely interesting that the very first Bible printed in French as opposed to Latin was printed within the confines of the abbey surrounding this church uh, way back when. So an intellectual center means that it is attracting funding, the devoted, uh, very smart people, uh, people with missions. And so they were all, in a sense, rowing in the same direction in wishing to put together a structure and a community whose first interest was preservation. And that meant there were walls around these communities, uh, as well as uh, putting together structures that were um, intended to endure. And that's where we get into the, the stone structures. Now, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris was started a uh, hundred years later. So it's, it's younger, but Notre Dame, which we all know, stone masonry, I mean, the, the technology that was used to put that together, pulleys, uh, ropes, uh, manpower, human power, absolutely amazing. And this is what we see as well in our church, Saint-Germain-des-Prés. The, uh, the technology was, uh, it's a much smaller church, but the technology was, was impressively and uh, there and developed over time as new technologies came through these various intellectual centers. Yeah, so as a point of reference, you mentioned uh, Notre Dame Cathedral there also in Paris, uh, built in the 1100s to 1300s. Of course, it took 200 yep. years to build it. Yep, correct. Um, one uh, cathedral that as architects that we're quite familiar with, of course, is the Duomo in Florence, the Florence yes. Cathedral, yes. Um, which was started even later in the almost 1300 to mid 1400s. Mm -hmm. And then you know, as a point of reference, even beyond that, the 16th and 17th centuries is when we saw the French Renaissance no, come into style. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And so we, which of course produced absolutely brilliant, beautiful chateaus. And mm -hmm. um, of course, Versailles came out of the period following that in the 17th and 18th century, uh, Luxembourg Palace. So all of these buildings that are phenomenal examples of French architecture, these all date after this church that Absolutely. we're talking about. Yeah. So that's just mind blowing. Really, I, really fascinating. I, I like playing games with my own mind, I guess. I, mean, I, I look at the, the founding of the current structure or the, the, when it was finished in 1014. That was, I mean, 600 years before Jamestown was founded in Virginia, 700 years before George Washington was born. It, and this country is 240 years old. So 700 years before George Washington was even born. It, it's just amazing. I mean, that, that makes my mind spin. It really is. So for us here in, in the United States, of course, we don't have this long centuries and centuries of legacy of architectural preservation. You know, for example, my um, when I travel to the East Coast, of course, we're here in Dallas, Texas, but we when we travel to the East Coast, like where you're located, for example, Independence Hall, a well-known building here in the States in Philadelphia, was built in 1753. So to us, that is a really old building. Um, you know, some of the houses that still have been preserved um, where you are, for example, in Connecticut, 
uh, Massachusetts up in the northern eastern part of our country, those come from the 1600s. And that's about as far back as we go, unless you go into the Native American uh, structures that are quite different. So anything that's of European influence, um, really, we don't have anything to show for it until the Europeans got here. So it's really quite interesting to see. You mentioned the preservation efforts. Obviously, in order for this church, St. Germain, to still be here, there had to have been preservation efforts centuries and centuries ago. Otherwise, we wouldn't still have it. So so are we just on a much later timeline as far as preservation culture here in the United States? And and in it, give us another 600 years and we'll get there to, to where the French are. I mean, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, what have you what have you encountered with talking yeah, to Americans about this versus it, the French? I mean, I like the idea of timelessness. And timelessness, in my view, is not necessarily connected or directly connected to age or great age. We have buildings in this country which are timeless, and maybe Independence Hall is one of them. We have, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, architectural masterpieces, not that old, but they are timeless. So I like that concept. I mean, I, I love the, the idea that our church is a thousand or fifteen hundred years old, but I like the timelessness of things, things that speak to us over time and that will endure going forward for a long time to come. And that's much the case here. So, yes, I live in Connecticut and I, I can mention that in our uh, little town, we've just finished, not watching, we royally, of course, have just finished <laughs> preserving uh, the oldest uh, remaining house in town from when the town was founded in 1640. And it's really cool and it's great and it's gonna go forward now for some time to come. But, and people might say, well, 1640 is nothing compared to 1014. Well, I think 1014, a building from then is timeless. Our little house from 1640 is timeless. All these things are highly deserving of attention and preservation where needed because they speak to our history and they speak to our future. Absolutely. Well, so you fell in love with this building, this church in Paris years ago. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how the American Friends for the Preservation of Saint-Germain-Japre came okay. about. It's it's a pretty straightforward story. It, <laughs> and it starts in France, um, inevitably, I suppose. The, um, the Firstly, the last major renovation of the church took place in the 1820s, 1830s. And it was not entirely felicitous. Uh, not uh, some people might even use the word botched in places. <laughs> okay. But, um, it did save the church because the church was under threat of being knocked down in 1802, 1803, after the French Revolution, because the church suffered very, very badly uh, during the uh, the revolution. There was a as you mentioned earlier, there was a gunpowder explosion. The church had been desacralized and it was a, a gunpowder storehouse uh, for a while. The gunpowder or saltpeter blew up, knocking down all kinds of things. The church came along, a bigger part in the city of Paris came along after the revolution and said, let's just knock the thing down. It can't be saved. And you know who stepped in among many others in those years was um, Victor Hugo, the novelist, who came oh, in wow. and led the charge. The church was saved. It was uh, the structure was was preserved, and then they went inside to to fix it up in the 1820s and 30s and so on. Since then, not a lick of renovation 
had been done until very, very recently. And a church, by virtue of being a church that is used every single day, day in, day out, is going to suffer the ravages of time. And this was, there's a, no exception here. So in, to get to your question, the, uh, there was a committee set up in France in 2012, so six years ago, saying uh, there's some real uh, structural issues with this church. And the art and architecture on the inside is under severe pressure and threat. The traditional things, the classic things, leaks, moisture, uh, mold, uh, usage, broken uh, moldings, uh, rock coming apart, uh, crevices uh, developing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a French committee got together and said, well, we're going to put together a plan to renovate the church. And so they did. Uh, because the church is a national historic monument, they had to get the buy-in of the city of Paris and the all-important National Historic Monuments Office. They came together, put together a, a plan. Uh, the plan is being uh, orchestrated and managed by the city of Paris through a tremendously gifted preservation architect in Paris, a man named Mr. Gatier. And uh, then it was just a matter of finding uh, funds. On that point, interestingly, for a number of reasons we could go into, the uh, it was determined that some 85% of the funding required to renovate the church would have to come from private hands. So only 15% came from French taxpayers, the city of Paris, if you like. Wow. So is that pretty typical for... French the, for the French government to contribute a small amount, but leave I, the rest of the burden on the people. Yes, I believe it is. Um, I mean, it's it it's really good news, bad news in the sense that that doesn't sound very generous. But then think about all the the, the patrimony that France has in terms of ancient buildings, ancient sites uh, that they have to maintain, and it's, and it's, it's remarkably expensive to put a new roof onto a church somewhere, uh, etc. So uh, there are only so many you know, dollars and euros to go around. So the committee in France decided that they would uh, start a fundraising effort and they got started. And then slightly before my showing up in the middle of things, an American sister organization was founded. It's basically uh, in New York and it is now a full uh, throated uh, 501c3 charity recognized by the IRS. And it is our organization, American Friends, for the preservation of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And we work in total lockstep with our French friends whom we know very, very well. So if someone were to give a dollar today to us, it goes to Paris and goes into the kitty for, uh, for renovation. So I, was, I first learned about this French committee in my last uh, living period in, in Paris. Got to know those people pretty well. And then I knew I was coming back here. I said, well, I'm going back to the US. And then they said, well, you know, there is this 501c3 charity organization, American Friends in the US. Would you like to help in I, or pitch in? I said, sure. So I arrived back in the US. I live outside New York and um, rang them up and they said, yeah, we'd love to have your help. So that one thing led to the other. And I'm now in uh, full fundraising mode uh, to um, to get to what is a $6 million, more or less, uh, target 
for finishing the works. All the works have been laid out. We know what's going to happen if we find funding. And between the French on their side and we on our side, we have completed or found about 60% of the funding. So we're looking for the final 40% over the next two, two and a half years. Fantastic. So you have, you've gotten involved, of course, as we know, when you are a part of a nonprofit, if you uh, show any amount of interest, they will immediately put you on the board. Um, so I have also experienced that. Um, and so you, you were involved with the, the Paris version of the foundation first. And then when you returned, what year did you come back? I came back in 2016. Okay, so you've you've not been back all that long then. That's correct. Yeah. So okay. Uh, yeah. No, I was a uh, an enlightened spectator of the committee in France. I mean, they're they're doing great work over there. Oh, and, okay. Good. And then so uh, it was only really in the last few weeks before I came back that I even knew or learned about the American Friends, and sat in on a couple of uh, meetings here, and then yes, I got invited to join the board um, about a year ago, and I've just been named president of the board. So I'm, oh, fantastic. I'm the guy in charge, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you are the guy. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, and so I'm curious um, because I personally am also involved in a preservation effort here um, in the Dallas area with the Alexander Mansion um, that we've talked about on previous episodes. Uh, but I know personally it it is a labor of love. It is a passion for sure to really pour yourself into preserving an older building that it's, and it's hard work. So talk to us a little bit about what are, what did you see in the folks in the American organization that really got them excited? What brought them to get involved with this? Because of course in New York and, and where you live, there's plenty to rally around when we're talking about preservation. Yeah, there so, really is. Um, in this area, the, the greater New York area, well, firstly, there are a ton of uh, French people here who work oh, in New wow. York. I mean, the community is very large. Uh, and so there you have a natural source of tremendous abiding interest, including former, okay. I'm sure, future parishioners of the church. So that's kind of an easy uh, conversation to have. But okay. I've been astounded, and perhaps I shouldn't have been, by the uh, the number of Francophiles of all nationalities, of all sorts in this area, and actually up and down the East Coast, of course, as well. I mean, Washington, Boston, uh, out to Chicago, and we know on the West Coast as well, and, and I'm sure throughout the country. And what does that consist of? These are people, some have a, a very religious view of things or are into uh, the history of religion or religion itself, the Catholic Church. Others are purely uh, history buffs. Others are almost tourists who've come to Paris, gone to Paris, fallen in love with the place, been into the church, and have been taken by it, and it's easy to understand why and how. So all kinds of people. We've had um, uh, people who have um, uh, American soldiers who have fought in France in the Second World War. Uh, and one fellow said, oh, yeah, I, I went in there when all was said and done after the war. And uh, the, the church continues to speak to me, an old, old, old fellow. So there are a lot of people who, for a lot of reasons, have taken a real shine to this particular church. Uh, and that's that's very exciting because you turn over great stories, run into wonderful people uh, who either will support the church financially, that's great, or who choose not to, that's fine, but have a connection, a really deep connection to the church. And I think 
the motor force behind that connection is its, uh, its timelessness, mentioned that earlier, its age. The fact that in trying to bring this church fully restored into the future, we're, we're working on and touching something that's going to be around for the next thousand years. And that's not something you can do in a lot of ways these days, it seems to me. That, that speaks to me personally. Yes. And so as you mentioned that we're working on preserving this building, but really a big piece of what you all are preserving is is not just the building itself, but all of the cultural artifacts and treasures that are on the inside. Share with us a little bit about what uh, is also involved on preserving the interior of the yeah, church. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will preface that by saying the church is not about to fall down. It's in, I mean, it's made of, of <laughs> very solid stone. It's, uh, it's going to be around for a long time to come. So the church, which actually does belong, at least the exterior walls, belong to the city of Paris. Um, it's the uh, it's on the inside, which belongs to the the, the parish uh, and the church, and that's really where the damage has come. So there's been some structural damage again uh, with the classic um, elements of of moisture, leaks, uh, mold, usage, all that stuff. Uh, things have broken and have to be replaced. Uh, things have been discovered uh, where uh, if you don't fix it now, it's just going to get worse and create issues later. But most uh, most of the work beyond some structural work is devoted to the interior art and architectural pieces. And a lot of the art, um, are some of it is not that old. There are murals which are magnificent, um, 10 or 12, huge things running along the sides of the nave which um, date back to the middle of the 19th century, so 150 years ago, absolutely covered in grime and wax and horribleness from just people breathing. I mean, the, the humidity that comes from a church filling and emptying almost every day for so many years. And so that's being restored. And what's kind of cool, in all these, these restoration efforts, they, these are specialist preservationists, each of whom come in with a particular task and expertise. And so that expertise is also being preserved, whether it be the preservation and renovation of, uh, of these uh, magnificent murals or um, the, 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 the capitals on top of the, uh, of the pillars around the church. All kinds of things are being attended to by truly devoted and truly expert people that you wouldn't otherwise find just going down to the, the job center and say, hey, any stone carvers in there today? Well, they're <laughs> all at work in there and preserving uh, the architectural elements. So a lot of st statuary, a lot of artwork, <clears throat> a lot of uh, plaster work, uh, a lot of woodwork. It's, and there are a number of films and uh, about the ongoing work and the before and after photos are simply amazing. But most of the renovation work is on the inside. By the way, we are going to have some of those before and after photos in our show notes. So we will have that address available and um, so that folks can go and, and visit that and see those photos. You mentioned that the architect who has sort of masterminded this preservation effort, Mr. Gautier, he has come up with, as I understand it, seven different stages yeah. uh, for this restoration. And I'm sure that was done very strategically. Can you talk us through what those stages are? Because I would imagine 
these are some universal principles about what do you save first? What, what has to be first priority Mm -hmm. and then what comes next? Because if we have, I would imagine we have listeners who possibly would have something in their community or, or really anywhere, if they have a building that they're really interested in getting involved with saving, what are the steps they should take? So if you could walk us through what, what has the approach been with Mr. Gatier and, and what do you, what have you seen in this process? Yeah, it's um, it, it's too bad. Mr. Gatier is not on the on this uh, on this podcast. He would give a much much uh, better explanation than I. <laughs> but uh, I mean, clearly the, the the first thing that has to be done is to stop and prevent further damage. And mostly, water is the uh, the great fear. Water seeps and yes. wears away limestone and all kinds of things. And so. Uh, a, a leak here, a, uh, a mortar that has been worn away, and a uh, stone cornice is going to fall. Uh, those things have to be attended to so that you can then attack the, the project overall without the, the, the fear of going backwards or even uh, seeing further injury to the church. So the church project, the renovation project, was laid out in seven tranches of work um, and all of that had to be approved by the National Historic Monuments people for the city of Paris and that was done. Uh, what's interesting is that these tranches of work are contingent tranches. What do I mean by contingent tranches? The city of Paris required that funding for the cost of each of the seven tranches be raised before the next tranche could be undertaken. So initially tranche one, which was the nave, um, was there was a, a cost associated with it and was it was costed out to the last uh, penny. And that money had to be raised before the workers could go on to the next tranche, tranche two, which we've just finished by the way, we're now into tranche three. Uh, and so that was a very important concept because the city of Paris wanted to ensure, and we're all in total agreement with the idea, that we would not get hip deep into a project and then have to abandon it for lack of funds. And so they wanted to see a completed project, a completed mini project, tranche one, done and paid for before moving on to tranche two. And I think that is important and maybe something to bear in mind as other people look at possible projects in their own um, home communities that you do not want to, and we've seen it elsewhere, you do not want to get into a situation where you get partway through a project and then have to abandon it for lack of funds. Uh, Because then, for example, in the case of this particular church in Paris, it continues and has never stopped being a church. And so it fills up with people every, every single day of the week. And so we did not want to see a church having to be stopped in mid-renovation efforts uh, with things hanging out and scaffolding and this and that uh, for uh, lack of funds. So the first two tranches have been paid for and completed. Magnificent work. Your listeners will see that in the photos. And then we're on to tranche three, which is, um, I think, the biggest of the tranches of the, of the seven. Uh, and the, all the works are due to uh, finish, if all goes well, towards the end of 2021. So there is an end term on this. But it was laid out end to end in very doable small sections, each one of which had to be completed before going on to the next. 
And that was a very important uh, concept and working principle. And so far, it's, um, it's worked out well. The funding, by the way, has more or less kept up with the works. We're about even, Stephen, between works moving forward and raising the necessary funds. So we're in constant fundraising mode while we chase and finance the ongoing works. And so far, we're, you know, we're just keeping up with, uh, with all of that, which is actually pretty remarkable if you think about it. So. That is, absolutely, because I would think many of us probably can relate to the idea of, okay, you set a goal and then you fundraise for that goal and then you do the work and then you start over and you yeah. fundraise. So it sounds like you've been able to continuously fundraise as well as keep the work going. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, the, work, yeah the work would stop. If, well, in theory, uh, you could look at that in many different ways, I suppose, but the work in theory would stop if funding fell badly short. And we've seen that in other churches in Paris, by the way, and I'm sure elsewhere. So we didn't want to see this happen in what is perhaps with Notre Dame, the most iconic church in Paris. So we want to get this done and we want to get it done right. And we don't want uh, the lack of funds to stand in the way. So uh, that's that's the, the working principle and so far so good. Well, and I visited your website, um, which, by the way, for our listeners, is preservesaintdromain.org, and we will have that link in our show notes for sure. So, um, But I would encourage folks to go visit that, because one of the things I noticed was you and your current efforts um, are working on preserving the ceiling of the church that has this absolutely gorgeous, bright blue ceiling with gold stars. Can you talk to us a little bit about this star project? Because there's an interactive um, fundraising page on the site that's just fascinating. I think the creativity in your fundraising is really fantastic. It's it's really interesting. Um, Not my baby, by the way. It was thought of and and put (laughs) put into into motion before I showed up, but it is fantastic. It's, um, I mean, how do you raise money for a project like this? And, And we decide there are two tracks. And the one track, which we can speak about in 10 seconds is the major donors track. So go and seek as you can major donations. What, what does major mean? There's no number, but you know, yeah, people who want to write a check in France or here or elsewhere around the world. We've had donors from Australia, from Scotland, from Canada, from all over. Uh, major donors, that's great. And we are immensely grateful for major donations as they have come in over time. But what's really cool, and this is the star thing, the ceiling is of this church is vaulted. It's gorgeous. It's this cerulean blue studded with, oh, I think it's something like 3,500 gold stars in total. And they shine down from a great height uh, and look down on all that's happening inside the church uh, for services and musical concerts, all kinds of things. And the ceiling itself was actually in pretty bad shape. So the decision was taken that uh, the ceiling would be, as part of the the seven tranche project, would be restored. And the stars are now shining more beautifully than ever. It's absolutely amazing. But it was turned into a fundraising uh, thing, if you like. And for what over here we call small dollar donors. So people say, hey, I don't have a million dollars or whatever. I'm not a major donor, but like to participate. And so what can happen now, you can go onto our website and choose a star, adopt a star in the ceiling. And the the cost of that, if you like, is $100. And for $100, you get to adopt a star on our website and name the star for a loved one or a cause, 
for a child, for uh, anything you like, or, or anonymously. And then you'll see that name up there in the firmament of gold stars, surrounded by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other such stars having been adopted. And it really is quite moving to see. Uh, there, I mean, and I've heard a lot of stories and talked to a lot of people who've done that. And it's quite resonant and quite meaningful for a lot of people. So our two fundraising tracks, yes, major donors, fine, but also this Adopt a Star uh, project, which has attracted a lot of interest, I have to say, and it's, it's quite heartwarming. And people have come in, and in many instances, multiple times. Uh, we've seen people adopt stars for each of their grandchildren, things like that, uh, soldiers for, for fallen comrades. Uh, all kinds of things, and grandparents, uh, people no longer with us. And you actually have to go onto the website and take a look. It is fantastic stuff. And it has allowed us to um, contribute these dollars directly back to the, the single pot or kitty, which is in Paris, which is funding the renovations as we go forward. So it's, it's a great project, and it's, it's quite meaningful to a lot of people. And is this star project represented if somebody were to go and visit the church in person, could they look up and see that this is happening or is it just on the website? It's just on the website. And I think that's probably not a bad thing. I mean, these aren't stadium naming rights or anything like that. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so, and the, uh, the ceiling is so gorgeous. And I don't think that anybody would want to see anything other than the stars that have been there for a very, very long time. There's talk possibly of putting together a, uh, a book of, uh, that would be held somewhere, listing all the donors. And that's a great idea, except then the more we think about it, the more it gets to be complicated because people will want to be in the book or not want to be. Anyway, we may get there right. when the project is done. But in the meantime, uh, what's really neat is you can go on to our website or the similar website in France and see all these names. And what's, what's great is that it's not as though they're over here are the American donors, over there are the French donors, and the Brits are in the corner over. It's all mixed up, and it's really, really neat. It really is. Yeah, I got on there to check it out and thought, what, what is this this star program? And, and I started clicking on the stars, and literally you can see people's names. And Absolutely. some yeah, of them yeah. have left notes about, you know, in honor of uh, you know, Aunt Gladys. And, you know, I mean, really brings it down to a single person personal level, which is quite phenomenal when you think about how many thousands and thousands of people have passed through this church over the generations. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, to bring it down to to think, you know, oh, I saved this church and that that one little square foot is mine. Yeah, absolutely. That's, and it's going to be there for, really for some time. The, um, and I think people, uh, I mean, Philanthropy in this country is amazing, I think. I mean, Americans are very, 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 very generous uh, in things that they believe in and want to support, et cetera, et cetera. So people will, um, we've, we've received checks, small denomination checks. People just want to participate financially and not necessarily that interested in the stars. But the overwhelming majority of people that we've been able to contact and touch are really enthusiastic about the idea of, of naming a star for a loved one, and at the same time, participating as a, a small donor, which is what I am, very small, uh, participating in preserving something, which, as I said earlier, is going to be around for the next thousand years. 
Well, it's, I applaud your creativity and it's really exciting to see this come together. So tell us a little bit about what's next, because you said this is going to be ongoing through at least 2021. So what's next for well, the it's, um, it's really pretty much uh, continuing in the direction that we've already come. Um, I hope I haven't suggested that we're awash in funds. Uh, <laughs> so we're just keeping up with the works. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, uh, as, as works move forward, we're needing to, uh, to raise the final 40%. So roughly, you know, 2 million euros, or so call that $2.5 million, something like that. And, you know, we're, we're confident that we will eventually get there, but more confident on some days than on others, depending how things go. So uh, we are going to continue uh, raising money in France, in the U.S., and around the world uh, to uh, continue with the uh, with the works. By the way, on our website, you can get a pretty good idea of where we are in the works and the works that remain to be done. Um, so there's a a list of all the what are called files, individual projects uh, with pictures, uh, outlining exactly what's being done in every inch of the church, what's being done, what has been done, what will be done. And that's it's a great story. Also on our website is a pretty good history of the church for those who have an interest in that. But um, no, we're just going to continue in the, in the same way that we can, uh, looking for donations, anything, you know, uh, from $1 to uh, whatever. Is, is, is all good and it's, it all goes to the right cause. Now, if some of our listeners have a certain type of expertise or they just feel inspired to get involved and join your movement, what should they do? Where should they go to get more information? Well, uh, I, firstly, um, I would go to our website and there are some links and names and, and numbers. Um, I am personally happy to be contacted uh, out of school by anybody who has an interest. Uh, I will hasten to add, I do not have a strong background, technical background in architecture or in architectural preservation. I am an uh, enlightened amateur, I suppose, at best, uh, with the wind at my back, but happy to help out anybody over the phone, over emails, et cetera, et cetera, who has an interest, a question, a need, uh, because we just like hearing from people. And people have been amazingly responsive in helping out. Um, the actual works themselves are being carried out as we speak by incredibly specialized experts in various fields, as I mentioned before, stone workers, um, art restoration, statuary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I leave those people, lots of women to the, you see on the, on the site, it's really cool. Um, are doing amazing things. I stay out of their way, um, but happy to support them administratively and financially as we can through our foundation, which, if I can throw this plug back in, is once again a 501c3. All donations are uh, tax deductible. Consult your tax consultant, <laughs> tax accountant. But people are not even so much inspired by that. They really want to help. But guess what? The the gifts are tax deductible. We are IRS approved, et cetera. Well, there we go. That doesn't hurt go. for sure. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't yeah. Hurt. Yes. 
Well, thank you so much, David, for joining us. This is just fascinating. And I can't wait to get the photos up on the show notes. Uh, for our listeners who want to get to see this beautiful church, come to our website, hpdarch.com forward slash A-H-H, like Architecture Happy Hour, 81. This is episode 81. So hpdarch.com, A-H-H, 81. So that's where we'll put all of these fabulous photos and um, links. We'll, we'll put your contact information if that's Please. okay. Yeah, absolutely. We, we also have a, a Facebook page, uh, which oh, has some interesting stuff. Uh, just type in, search for American Friends Preservation, St. Germain de Prey. And you know, pictures go in and it's, it's some pretty cool stuff. Um, also, the, for anyone who's going to Paris, who's stopping, do stop in. The church is open 24-7. It doesn't cost a thing to go in. Uh, I will say, speaking for myself, you know, there are many magnificent churches in Paris. This church, I think, is particularly intimate. It's not huge. It's not Notre Dame. It's not Saint-Sulpice. It's not, there, are, there are bigger churches. But it speaks to a lot of people in a lot of ways. And so do go in and uh, also know that there are classical music concerts in there. It's a living church. Uh, you can get a tour almost any time. There's a reception person at the front desk. There are uh, You can get a, a tour organized in English or in French. Go to the church if you can, if you haven't been already, and you will see what this is all about. It is ethereally beautiful. It is It has a fantastic history, and that's why we're so uh, deeply and heavily and uh, completely involved in it. So Facebook, our uh, website, come to me. Uh, we're going to push this thing forward and get it done or it's going to, uh, or it's going to kill us. <laughs> well, we hope not the latter. <laughs> well, and so I'm going to put a challenge out to our listeners. If there's anybody in Paris who uh, decides to go visit the church, please take pictures and um, send them to us or post them on our Facebook page at the Architecture Happy Hour, because we would love to know that uh, you listened to this episode and then took action. That would be really, really exciting to know that we had a little piece in, in inspiring a visit to the church. We would love that. So David, thank you so much for your time again today. And um, we would love to get an update on your efforts and your progress later on down the road. Absolutely. We'd be happy to. Thank you so much for, uh, for your, your time. And uh, we are grateful that the word continues to go out. Uh, and we're looking forward to getting the project completed, as I say, 2021. But uh, I'm really grateful. We're really grateful for the, uh, the, the light you're shining on our efforts uh, via your podcast. So thank you, Laura. Well, and, and we're happy to do it because the more light we shine on your efforts, the more awareness we build here at home Absolutely. and it benefits all of us. So good work. Thank you. We would love to know if you have a special project like the one we just discussed in your hometown. Please connect with us and send us some photos and let us know what you're working on because we would love to support your efforts and cheer you on. On another note, I wanted to share with you a review that we just received on Apple Podcasts from a listener named Sam. Sam says, my first episode was 62, never too old to become an architect. I'm 25, separating from the military, and eager to start my education, even though it may mean I will be a student until I'm 32. I am so eager. I just had to ask Laura a few questions, and she was very encouraging in her replies. We'll continue listening and enjoying this podcast while I start my journey. 
Well, we wish you all the luck, Sam. Thank you so much for reaching out to us to ask questions. And we're really excited to hear from you as you start your learning this fall. And please stay in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we hope you all are doing well, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.